0: If you would, take your Bible, turn to the book of Psalms, to the specific Psalm of 74. And as you do that, let me read some names to you. Christy Beckel, Sean Brown, Sidney Browning, Joey Ennis, Casey Griffin, Kim Jones, Justin Ray. And I doubt very seriously that anyone sitting in this room at this moment knows those seven individuals. But what happened to those seven individuals on the night of September the 15th, it was a Wednesday night in 1999, as they had gathered with their church body, the youth had gathered in the sanctuary of their church. They had come because that morning they had had a See You at the poll event, and that night they were celebrating what had gone on and what had taken place. And then, into the doors of Wedgwood Baptist Church, walked a lone gunman with a homemade pipe bomb and multiple handguns. Well over a hundred rounds of ammunition. And he began to open fire. Many of the students who had gathered in the sanctuary, which was an oddity for that time frame on a Wednesday night, thought that this was part of a skit. Thought that it was something like what had happened in Columbine and they were being called out to stand up for who God really was. They thought that they were using cap guns and blanks and paintball. So amidst the screams and amidst the agony and amidst the gunshots, there was giggles and laughter heard. Such to the point that the gunman, deranged as he was, got so frustrated that he even screamed out, This is for real! As he continued unloading the weapons that he had brought in those seven individuals lost their life. Seven more were injured before the gunman took his own life. The question was asked, as it must have been, where was God? Where was God in the midst of this tragedy? Where was God when his house was attacked? Where was God when these seven individuals, from students to married couples, lost their lives? Where was God? That question would be answered on Sunday morning, September the 19th, by Al Meredith, their pastor. Because instead of canceling service on that Sunday after such tragedy, they held service in the title of his message, Where Was God? But as that church mourned and as that church grieved, corporately they understood loss. Corporately they understood what it meant to have life snuffed out in a moment and the tragedy that comes with that. That's what brings us to the book of Psalms in Psalm 74. Psalm 74 is a corporate lament of the people of Israel. Because I believe in this day and time in which we live, we believe that it's wrong to ask God that most significant question, why? God, where were you when tragedy struck my family? God, where were you when tragedy struck our church? God, what were you doing when evil came upon us and you did not overcome it, but it overcame us? In Psalm 74, let's stand and read God's word together. Beginning in verse 1. The mask of Asaph, O God. Why do you cast us off forever? Why does your anger smoke against the sheep of your pasture? Remember your congregation, which you have purchased of old, which you have redeemed to be the tribe of your heritage. Remember Mount Zion, where you have dwelt. "'Direct your steps to the perpetual ruins. "'The enemy has destroyed everything in the sanctuary. "'Your foes have roared in the midst of your meeting place. "'They set up their own signs for signs. "'They were like those who swing axes in the forest of trees. "'And all all its carved wood they broke down with hatchets and hammers. "'They set your sanctuary on fire. "'They profaned the dwelling place of your name.' Bringing it down to the ground, they said to themselves, We will utterly subdue them. They burned all the meeting places of God in the land. We do not see our signs. There is no longer any prophet, and there is no one among us who knows how long. How long, O God, is the foe to scoff? Is the enemy to revile your name forever? Why do you hold back your hand, your right hand? Take it from the fold of your garment and destroy them. Yet God, my king from of old, working salvation in the midst of the earth, you divided the sea by your might. You broke the heads of the sea monster on the waters. You crushed the heads of Leviathan. You gave him as food for the creatures of the wilderness. You split open the springs and brooks. You dried up ever-flowing streams. Yours is the day. Yours also the night. You have established the heavenly lights and the sun. You have fixed all the boundaries of the earth. You have made summer and winter. Remember this, O Lord, how your enemy scoffs and a foolish people reviles your name. Do not deliver the soul of your dove to this wild beast. Do not forget the life of your poor forever. Have regard for the covenant, for the dark places of the land are full of of the habitations of violence. Let not the downtrodden turn back in shame. Let the poor and needy praise your name. Arise, O God, defend your cause. Remember how the foolish scoff at you all day. Do not forget the clamor of your foes, the uproar of those who rise against you, which goes up continually. May God add his blessing to the reading and the hearing of his word. If I were to ask the question, is it okay to question God? Is it all right to ask God why? In many churches and in many places, from many different backgrounds, the question would be absolutely not. We can't question God. God is sovereign. God is in control. We can't question what He's done. But when I come to the Word of God, when I come to the Scriptures... The inerrant and the infallible word of the Most High God. I see that great man after great man came before God not putting on airs and pretenses. Not pretending to be excited about the circumstances that were troubling them. But they came to an almighty God openly. They came with honesty. They came with sincerity. They came with a willingness to acknowledge the pain and hurt that was going on in their own lives. Sometimes they did so with raw emotion. Sometimes they did so with praise. When we come to chapter 74, the book of Psalms, we are Two chapters in to the third book of the psalter. And as we are, it's rather short. It goes through chapter 89. And if you read that short section, that third book of the Psalms, what you're going to see is that many of these Psalms are Psalms of lament. Because we have those Psalms that praise God and acknowledge His greatness, we have those Psalms that lift up how great and mighty He is, that intercede on the behalf of others. But when you break the psalms down, the majority of the psalms that we have are psalms of lament. Crying out to God. Wondering where He has been. Asking the question, why did you not intervene? If you read through this shorter book of the psalms, you'll see things like chapter 79. And in chapter 79, it really says, how long, O God? How long, O Lord, again and again and again. How long, O Lord, will you be angry forever? Will your jealousy burn like fire? We see in this small book of the Psalms, Psalms like 88. One of the very unique Psalms to where the lament does not turn back to praise. It ends in tragedy. It ends in agony. It ends in pain. So as we come to the book of Psalms in chapter 74, there are times when we need to, as Wedgwood did in 1999, we need to mourn. We need to lament. We need to be able to come before our God and cry out our deepest cries. We need to be able to come before our God and express the deepest anger of our soul because He is God. And I would just give you the admonition that if our God truly is who He claims to be, then He can handle every single piece of anger and every bit of frustration and everything that you bring to Him. He can take it because He is God. And he understands your soul and the agony that is there. And hiding it is not going to change the understanding that he already has of who you are and how you feel and what you think. Because he knows everything. And so we come to this chapter of the Psalms and these first three verses, we really see... Asaph laying out the complaint against God and he opens up holding nothing back. God, why do you cast us off forever? Where in the world are you, God? Why have you put us to the side? Why do you continually reach your hand out against us instead of for us? Why do you cast us off forever forever? Because as we come to this and the temple has been destroyed and the the children of Israel are in exile and everything seems to be going bad in their lives, that's exactly what it seems like. It seems like that God has disappeared from the scene and he has not been there and he has left them alone and he has been gone forever. And Asaph just simply comes before God and says, God, why do you cast us off forever? Why does your anger smoke against the sheep of your pasture? God, do you not remember who we are? God, do you not remember that you called us? God, do you understand who we are and yet you've cast us aside, disregarded us, set us aside like garbage? Remember your congregation, you've purchased us of old, you redeemed us from the tribe. We are supposed to be your heritage, and yet it looks like we're nothing to you. You've cast us to the side. If you don't remember us, then remember your land. Remember where you dwelt. Remember your temple. Remember the things that you've set up. And God, if you have forgotten, if you can't see, then turn your face to the perpetual ongoing ruins that was the place where you dwelt in the land. As the temple had been destroyed, said, God, look back to what has happened to the place where you dwelt amongst your tribe and amongst your people and amongst your heritage. God, do you not remember what took place? Do you not remember who we are? Do you not see the devastation and what is left? Nothing. So we see the complaint that Asaph registers against God. Here in these first three verses. And then as the complaint is registered. He begins to express. What exactly has taken place. And as he does this. First of all he's going to remind God of what God's enemies did. And then he's even going to continue with what God did. And how that complaint still rings. In their ears and on their minds. And notice. When we come to verses 4 through 8, he says, Your foes. And he swaps language here and he says, They set up, they were like, they broke, they set your sanctuary, they profaned. Notice what's happening here. He's placing the blame of what's going on on these foes, these enemies of God. This is what your enemies have done to your people and in your land. They did this. They destroyed your temple. They destroyed your meeting place. God, they were were like lumberjacks coming into your beautiful temple with their hammers and their axes, and they destroyed every piece of wood and all the beautiful carvings that you had by your Spirit and given to us. The ones that, remember, God, the, the ones that you allowed to be made. Remember the beauty of the temple that that you worked through David and through Saul and through the tradesmen and the craftsmen to accomplish? Remember those, God? They destroyed them. They broke them into pieces. And not only that, then they burned it. They burned it to the ground. Complete and total desolation. Complete and total destruction of your temple. And not just this temple, but all the places amongst the people in the land where you were worshipped and praised. And in doing so, they were haughty. In doing so, they were bold, not for God, but they were bold against God. They said to themselves in verse 8, we will utterly subdue them. You hear the arrogance in the voice of God's foe. You hear the arrogance in the enemy of God as he comes into the land that God has removed his hand of protection from, that God has sent them into to discipline his people and to take over the land and to exile the children of Israel. We will utterly destroy them. We will subdue them. And they burned all the places of worship in the land. And then we see a sudden transition out of verse 8 into verse 9. Because what we saw before was what the enemy of God had done. And now as the complaint is continuing to be registered, as he's registered this complaint and he's proving his case. He says, God, this is what you did. God, this is what you're doing. God, this part, this is on you. He says, We don't see your signs. God, you're not speaking to us. God, you're not giving us and providing for us your will. God, you're not showing us what to do. You're not, we don't see your signs. God, there's no longer any prophet. God, not only are you not giving us your signs, you haven't called a man of God to lead us. You haven't called a man of God to bring us your word. You haven't called a man of God to give us instruction. God, this is what you are doing to us right now. God, do you see why we would say, oh God, why do you cast us off forever? God, do you not understand who we are? And yet, you don't give us your signs. There's not any prophet, And there's no one among us who knows how long this is going to last. God, it seems like it's been going on forever. It seems like this has been going on and on and on and on. And God, we can't see an end in sight. Have you ever been there? Ever come to that point in your life? Have you ever been there when all you can see is the darkness around you? When all you can see is the trouble? When all you can see are the problems? When the only thing that seems to be gathering up around you are the storm clouds? Israel has. Be honest with you, I've seen those times in my life more than I would like to admit. But the only thing in sight is darkness. I remember being a teenager and we had done our open water scuba diving in, Lake Bridgeport in uh, around Lake Bridgeport, Texas in mineral wells. We had gone to the lake one day, we would gotten down to about 80 feet. And there was probably about another 30 foot of water below us, nothing on either side, complete and total darkness. You could feel the water. The only thing you could see was black. When you brought your hand up to your mask, you could see it. But inches away, there was nothing. I can remember feeling that way in my own life. In times of troubles, in times of sorrow, when I try and bring God close to my face and I cannot see Him. There's trouble ahead and there's trouble behind And the only thing I can see, the problems of life. Nothing but black. Nothing but darkness. That's where the psalmist is at this moment. Let me just encourage you. If that's where you are today, it might not feel like it. You might not even believe it in the very depths of who you are, but there is a God. Because as he continues to register his complaints against God, he makes a shift. How long, O God, is the foe to scoff? Will you let your enemy revile you forever? God, why do you hold back your right hand? If you can imagine, he's got this image of God, and we do the same thing at times as God's got his hand, his right hand stuck there in his vest, and he's just chilling. He's just relaxing. He's just watching what happens to us and not caring at all. And we come to those times and we beg God, God, why is your hand resting upon your chest Why is it resting when we need it desperately to come and to act in our lives? Why, oh God? How long will you allow it to remain? Then he remembers. He remembers that there is a great and a mighty God. And I told you that on... September the 19th of 1999, Dr. Al Meredith stood in his pulpit. And I would encourage you that if, if you have the opportunity, just Google Wedgwood Shooting and listen to the sermon that he preached on that day. Because the sermon he preached on that day, the text that he brought out, was Romans chapter 8, and verse 28. Most of you know it, but let me read it for those of you who might be wondering. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for their good. For those who are called according to His purpose. If you rest assured in His salvation then rest assured in the midst of your struggle and your turmoil that he is still there. That he is still God. Just as Asaph realized and remembered, the God of your salvation is the God of your troubles. The God of your salvation is the same God of creation. The God of your troubles is the same God who will and can and does bring you out of the depths of despair and overcome sin and death in your life to bring you to the cross and to offer you the hope that is there. If you don't know Him today, I have no hope for you other than the fact that you can. fact that he is still calling, that he is still drawing people to himself, that he still longs for you to to come out of death and into the life. He still moves people out of the darkness and into the light. He brings us out of the tunnels and allows us to see the glimmer of hope that is there. That God is still working, the one who works out salvation in the midst of the earth. Can you imagine this? The God of the universe is so great and so grand that in the midst of the tragedy, in the midst of a fallen and broken and completely destroyed world, He is able even amongst all of that to work salvation out for His people. Those who are called, for those who he draws to himself. He is able to work salvation out in the midst of the chaos that we call this world. That's a mighty God. And it's Asaph, even as he registers his complaint against God. And let me encourage you, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid to register your complaint against God. He already knows it. But I want to remind you that this is still the same God who worked out your salvation. He divided the sea. He broke the heads of the sea monsters. He fed his people. He opened up springs and he dried up ever-flowing rivers. This is the God who is sovereign over every single thing that takes place. This is a God who is not lacking in power. This is a God who is not lacking in compassion. This is a God who is not lacking in love. This is a God who in the midst of everything worked out salvation through the death of his son so that you and I could know him. And in the midst of all of that tragedy, he even says it pleased him to do so. If you're afraid to cry out in anger and in agony and in lament to God, I remind you of the cross itself. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If you don't believe that Jesus felt the pain and the agony and the suffering and the the just sheer pressure of God's wrath being poured out on him, just listen to his word. They're not just words to make us think. They're not just words to make us feel good. They're words of what was happening in his very life that he believed that at that very moment it appeared and it seemed to him from everything that he could see that his God, the Father, had abandoned him, had left him. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If we're going to cry out to an almighty God. I want to encourage you as the psalmist does. There needs to be a turn. There needs to be that moment where we express that God is still God. That God is still in control. That he is sovereign and reigning. That he is the one who set this up and he is the one that will continue it on. Our God is a mighty God. And then, as he ends this chapter, it's just repeated and repeated and repeated and repeated again. He's asking God to work, he's asking God to move. Listen to what he says in verse 18. Remember this, O oh Lord, how the enemy scoffs and the foolish people reviles your name. Do not deliver the soul of your dove to the wild beast. Do not forget the life of the poor forever. He's, he's not asking. God, if, if you can, God, if you think about it, would you please look at us? God, God, would would you please just turn your head and, and allow us to be seen? God, would you remember us? This is a man who's in tragedy. This is a man who is in suffering. This is a man who is in the very depths of despair. And he knows his God. And he's not asking him to do something. He's telling him to do something Remember this. Do not deliver. Verse 20. Oh my goodness. Have regard for the covenant. Because this is where it all ties together, isn't it? God has made a covenant with his people. And in moments of despair and darkness, we can remember as people of God that we are in covenant relationship with Him and He has yet to fail to uphold His covenant and He is not going to anytime soon. And when I mean soon, I mean eternity. He'll be faithful and just. He will be faithful to uphold His end of the covenant forever and ever. He says, have regard for your covenant. Remember the promises that you have made to us as a people and God do something about it. Let not the downtrodden be turned back in shame. Let the poor and the needy praise your name. This psalmist, Asaph, he knows and he understands God. He understands what God has done, what he has allowed to happen. He understands what has taken place. And he understands how to come back before God and present his case. And remind God of the covenant that he has made. Remind God of the poor, of the oppressed, of his children. And then isn't this what we want to say to God time and time again in our own struggle? Arise, O God. Defend your cause. And we can do that. Because as we call upon God to arise and defend His cause, God, arise and defend your children. God, we come before you as a mighty God because we are your called out ones. We are the ones that you have chosen from the beginning. We are the ones that you have set apart. We are your children saved by the blood of your Son. Father, arise and defend your children. I can't think of someone unwilling to do such a thing. He's made his case before God. He's remembered who God is. And now he brings out the covenant. He brings out the relationship of who they are. God, this is your cause. It's not just about your children. It's not just about your land. God, this is about your name and your honor and your glory and who you are. Because as the enemy attacked and as they overwhelmed the people, they believed in their haughtiness and in their arrogance that they were overwhelming the God of that people. And our God will not be overcome. That is not our God. He's not that weak and puny. He's not that small. So he calls out, remember the foolish, they scoff you all day. Don't forget the clamor of your foes, the uproar of those who rise against you, which goes up continually. God, they're defaming your name. God, they're crying out, not just against your people, but against you. God, this isn't isn't my desire, this is your glory. God, this isn't my honor alone. It is your honor because you've called us. God, if we fail, your plan fails. So he calls out to God. He reminds him of what's going on. You know, I brought up Wedgwood in 1999 when seven people lost their life and seven people were injured by the gunman, and how that moves the church to lament, it moved the church to mourn, but let's take a look at where we stand right now today. We don't have to look very far in the news to understand that the enemy of God is coming against the people of God. We don't have to look very far to understand that a sovereign God is not believed in by the majority of the world around us. We don't have to look very far to see that it's not only the enemy outside of the church attacking, it is the enemy inside the church that is attacking. Those wolves that have slipped in in sheep's clothing. We don't have to think very hard to imagine a future where the places of worship are closed. We really do seem to be quickly moving in the direction of Europe. Let me encourage you, if you've never been there, just go online and look. Because when you walk through Paris and you see these grand cathedrals, And you walk into the door of Notre Dame, and the only thing that overwhelms you is a sense of sin and depravity and darkness. As we look at what used to be the height of Christianity, sad to say that is no longer the case. our churches are facing the same struggles, and unless our God intervenes, then they'll have the same outcome. Are you ready for that? Then maybe we should have a time of corporate lament over what we can see on the near horizon maybe as a church we don't even have to look to the future. Maybe we can just look at what's going on around us. Maybe we can look at the devastation of marriages, the destruction of our families, the loss of life, and the uncaring in our own hearts. And understand that now is a time of lament for our churches. Now is a time of lament for our church. It's easy to lament when seven die and seven are injured. But are we lamenting when families are being ripped apart and shredded right in front of our eyes? Are we crying out to an almighty God in our pain and in our agony and begging him to move? Church, I would encourage you. Stop coming to church and to God with your happy face on and put your real face on. And when it's time to cry out before an almighty God, then cry out before an almighty God. When it's time to praise an almighty God, then praise an almighty God. When it's time to mourn, then we mourn. When it's time to grieve, then we grieve. When it's time to do whatever it is that God has called us to, then it's time to move. You may be in the depths of despair right this moment. I don't know. Some of you I know are. There's hope. There is a sovereign God who cares about you if you are His child. There's some of you who are suffering through loss and through pain, and you don't know God as personal Savior of your life. The only thing I can offer you is salvation. In a moment, we're going to sing. If that's where you stand, then what I want you to do is walk down this aisle, take Zach or myself by the hand, and let us show you what the Word of God says about coming to know Him and the hope and the promise that it brings. Believer, if you're in the midst of tragedy today and you just need prayer, if you just need someone to walk alongside and to bear your burdens with you, Then you come and you take us by the hand or you take a brother or a sister by the hand and you come and you pray and you see how we have a great and a sovereign God who still loves you, who still cares about you, who will assist you in overcoming everything that's being put upon you. Let us pray. Father, we come.